for. I can't do it without bleeding into other, to other doctrines like providence and sin and other things that we're going to learn about. So um, that being said, the doctrine of creation is one of these things that's a very short amount of time that scripture gives to it and yet is the foundation for everything, right? We can, you'll see as we walk through this that we could spend hours and hours here. I know you've heard that before, but we really could. And so what this is going to be is an overview um, and we're going to try to touch on what we can, but there's going to be a lot that's left on the table here, but hopefully the foundations are going to be laid uh, more firmly than they already are. Not that you guys are completely uneducated on these things. So um, what we're going to do is I'm going to go through kind of what the doctrine of creation isn't first, and then what it is, and then um, I, I wrote a summary statement of the doctrine, and then we're just going to tear that summary statement into pieces and then interact over that together. Okay, so um, we're going to do a little bit of scripture reading, but once we hit the summary of the doctrine, we're going to kind of just fly through. I showed my work, so you'll see where all these scriptures came from, but we're not going to read every one. We're just going to kind of discuss it, assume that I got this from the Bible. I promise I did, but, but just in case you want to check me later, it is right there. So um, anyway, uh, so let's start with what the doctrine of creation is not, because it's going to help us walk through with a little bit more clarity. The doctrine of creation uh, is not meant to answer all scientific inquiry, even though it does answer much more than we often think. So one of the issues with our approach and often secular approaches to the doctrine of creation is they think it needs to fit in their scientific or um, curiosity framework in order for it to actually be true. So like because it didn't say exactly how every little thing scientifically happened, it must not be correct. But the problem is, is that's just intellectual laziness. Whenever you come to a book, and we know the term hermeneutics, whenever you come to a work like that, you have to ask a lot of questions like, who's writing it? Why are they writing it? Who are they writing it to? What's the genre of literature that is being used here? And all those things are going to help answer the questions of what's it trying to say. Most people don't answer those questions before they come to Genesis. So they don't answer these questions, and they have all these expectations that they bring into the text that then get unmet, and then they write it off, right? So um, it's, it's a historical narrative is the genre that this is being written in. So Moses is just saying, here's what God told me to say. Here's what happened. Moses wasn't there. We know that. But here's what God told me to share about this part, right? And so we know that God was sharing bits of information for a reason, and excluding a lot of information for a reason. So we just have to be okay with that. But there is much more information here than maybe meets the eye on in the beginning God created. Like that statement alone, you can start shooting off into me the meaning of everything, right? And so it's not a scientific thesis that's being written here. And so if you're coming with the judgment of a scientific thesis, you're going to be disappointed. And it's on us to not be lazy, not be intellectually lazy, and understand what's being said here and take it for what it is, and then understand that some of our questions are not going to be answered scientifically here. Um, so John Frame in his uh, systematic theology that we recommend everyone reading, um, he says, Moses in Genesis 1 and 2 has a purpose, namely to display God's glory in his creative work and to provide background for the narrative of the fall. It is certainly not the primary purpose of the narrative to tell us precisely how God made the world, when he did it, how long it took, and how all of this relates to the theories of modern science. And I emphasize those two words. And if half of your thing's in green, yeah, don't worry about it. Um, that was my bad. Um, but uh, so, so we see here that there are things that God wanted us to know and things that he left out. And he didn't do this uh, because he made a mistake. So when we approach this, we have to understand that. Uh, the second thing is the doctrine of creation is not meant to satisfy all of your curiosities. That's not why it was written, okay? So um, Augustine has a joke. This is sarcasm when I read this, so just understand that. He says, when a certain shameless fellow mockingly asked the pious old man what God had done before the creation of the world, the latter aptly countered that he had been building hell for the curious, right? <laughs> so... 
what this, this is sarcasm. What this doesn't mean is your curiosity is sinful. It's not what he's saying. He's just joking that, um, and then inferring the point that Moses did not write the creation account to satisfy all our greatest and cu current curiosities. The moment that you write off God and creation and scripture because it doesn't satiate your curiosities, you have put yourself on the throne and put God on trial. That's the seat which Satan aspired to. That is the seat that he tempted Eve with. Don't sit in it. Okay, so if all of your little curiosities about, well, what about angels and what about God gave us what he gave us because it's edifying, God gave us what he gave us because it's sufficient, and God left room for faith. Let's have it. Okay, so that is what the creation, the doctrine of creation is not. So now that we've gotten baggage out of the way, what is it? Um, so we're going to look at here, the doctrine of creation is meant to, the first one is ascribe God his glory and worship. And I picked some people to read some passages. I'll start with this first one. Um, Psalm 19, 1 through 4. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set... Oh, never mind. That's, that's where it ends. Sorry. <laughs> um, so we see that creation ascribes glory and worship to God. Who's got Psalm 8, 3 through 9? So again, God created and creation declares his glory and brings us to worship him, right? So as we study the doctrine of creation, that's one of the things it's leading us to and should be leading us to. Um, the second point here is it's meant to reveal God to man who has Romans 1.20. In the things that have been made, we can know God and his attributes. So the, the two weekends before this where Isaac and Noah dealt with the doctrine of God, we can know these things through creation, right? Maybe not every minute detail, but they, direct, they definitely point to him as creator, and he created it as such. Even in a fallen world, the fallenness of this world cannot mask the fact that God speaks through all of his creation and reveals himself. Um, next one, the doctrine of creation is meant to reveal man's general purposes and pursuits. Who's got Genesis one twenty eight? Noah. And then uh, two twenty four, Sam. Okay, so we see that man's general purposes are laid out. There's a, like, this is why I created you. And then in talking about marriage, one of our pursuits and one of our purposes in marriage is laid out for us as well. And so as we study creation, all of these things are attached to it, right? So it ascribes God his glory and worship, reveals God to man, and reveals man's general purposes and pursuits. It does other things too, but those are the main things that we're going to, kind of have in our mind as we work through some of these things. At this point, um, does anybody have any thoughts? Does anybody have any things that are popping into their head at this moment? We'll, we'll pause periodically for interaction once we start breaking down my summary statement of the doctrine. But anything anybody want to mention before we head into that? Pretty clear so far? Okay, not rocket science, literally, right? We talked about that. Um, 
Okay, so we're going to move on to the doctrine of creation, uh, the summary. So there's a lot of summaries of this doctrine. The Westminster Confession is going to break it up into a few points, and they do a really good job. Um, but I wanted to write my own statement based upon what we're going to walk through in the next 40 minutes. And then we're going to just break apart this statement and then see the implications and applications of that portion of the statement. So um, if you don't mind trusting me that I am not a heretic, um, let's read this together. Okay. Um, so one, two, three. In the beginning... The triune God created everything out of nothing for his own pleasure in six days. As creator, God owns everything, sustains everything, and determines the purpose of everything. All that he created was good, yet only the creation of mankind, both male and female, made it very good. As man was created in God's very image and is set over all creation to enjoy fellowship with God, Take dominion, fill the earth, and rule on his behalf. Are we good with that? Perfect. Um, so remember, if you had any problem with that, I didn't take that from the Westminster. I didn't take that from anything. I wrote it, yell at me. GCF didn't write it, yell at me. Okay. Um, but in the absence of, we haven't got, at GCF, we haven't gotten to any type of particular statement on creation. So that's why it was a little bit necessary to, to write one. Um, but again, if there's an issue with that, uh, to come to me here. So um, there's implications and applications to all the things stated here. And um, we're going to kind of tear it apart a little bit. And then um, after we read each one, there's going to be all the passages where I got this statement from. So you can do your homework when you, you leave here. Um, but we're going to have some discussion after each one and kind of tease out both what this passage is implying or commanding or what we can walk away with as application. We're going to discuss those things together. So I wanted to leave most of our time for that. So the first statement that we're going to deal with in this summary statement is, in the beginning, the triune God created everything out of nothing for his own pleasure. Now, I have a lot of implications and applications to add here, but just upon that reading... What is it implying, or what are things that we can take from this and, and, and apply as we walk out of here? Right. Yep, absolutely. There's a... Uh, um, there's infinite and finite, right? And we know God as infinite, right? So he's not bound by anything finite, right? And if he, oh, I'll give you right in a sec. If he created everything, that means that everything else is finite. He's infinite, unless he used the essence of himself to actually create, which the Bible does not teach here, and a lot of heresies actually do, that God used his own essence to create. Well, if he used his own essence to create, then creation would be infinite, because he is. But we know there's a separation there. And so he is outside of finite material creation. Uh, yeah, he created for his own pleasure, not for ours, not for the creation's pleasure, but for his. Mm -hmm. Yeah, God, God did this to enjoy. Like, he, he was happy to do this. He, he, he liked creating. He wasn't obligated, right? And so one of the things we can walk away with is, like, he, he had pleasure in making you, right? He enjoyed it. He, he likes you, like, in, in a lot of degrees, right? Like, we, there's going to be a problem with if you're separated from God and your sin. But, like, the process of creating the world and its very goodness, he really enjoyed that and was purposeful with that. And we were all in mind when that was happening. What else? Right. Um, a philosophical way to look at that is he's the uncaused cause of everything, right? So everything that happens has a cause, but you have to get back to something that doesn't, and that is God, right? Anything else? Yeah, Ben. I'm sorry. 
Raise your hand, Sam. Rude. really important. And if you look up all these passages, it's, you know, not one says they were all there, but each one, if you read them, are going to say they're all there. And so it's important to know, as we also talked about the doctrine of God the last couple weeks, that God is Trinity and always was Trinity. So like teaching the fifth and sixth graders about the Trinity last week, the biggest understanding for them is Jesus existed when he was born from Mary. Like that's when Jesus came. And it's like, whoa, actually, he always existed. God has always existed in Trinity. What are other implications that, while we're on Trinity, what are other implications that if he always existed in Trinity, what does that mean? Before we're even in the picture. Yeah. Right. And so what does that mean about God's attributes? He didn't start loving when he created Adam, right? Within the community of the Trinity, all of God's attributes always existed. And that's how they could exist, because there was an object to them, each other, right? And one. And he was purposely chosen. Correct. Yeah. So he didn't all of a sudden become anything because of what he created. He always was and always is and always will be. God, the triune God, three in one, in all of his attributes. That's incredible. Why did he create us? Anything else? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Right, and that goes back to the infinite versus the finite, right? So like he's infinite, and if he would have made something and made himself in everything, then everything would be infinite because he is. But that's not the case here. We know throughout scripture that we perish. There's death, there's decay. There are things that have, a, everything else has a limited span other than the souls that he gave us, which are part of his image. Um, so, um, yeah, that, that's gonna, you're gonna come up with a bunch of heresies that are not gonna be labeled as such, but are in people's thinking as you interact with non-believers and even believers in the world that are pantheist or deist or that, you know, Buddhist, all, all these people that believe, even if they're gonna ascribe to their being a God, that he is in all of creation actually. But no, he's absolutely separate. And um, we'll see that teased out a little bit more. Um, but it's important to say, like, God is infinite. Everything else is finite. So there's no way uh, on the other end that there, wa there wasn't a, um, a bunch of matter sitting there that he then, like, grabbed and molded and made into something. Like, he created everything. Like, so scientifically, where we can go in physics, for something to exist, you need three things at once, right? It's a continuum of time, space, and matter, right? So... Without space, there's nowhere to put it. Without time, there's no when to put it. And without matter, there's no what to put, right? So scientifically, all those things needed to exist at one time in a continuum. And we say, 
God created and those things happened at that moment, right? But he's outside of it. Does it make sense? Okay. Um, sort of. Um, yeah, so uh, we understand that um, God existed before creation through this. We understand that he's always been Trinity, um, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, everything and everyone aside from God was his creation. So God is the only thing non-created. Everything else was his creation. Um, there's no pre-existing material with which God created anything. Um, and God did not create out of his own essence. He's infinite. Everything else is finite. So he created something. And then what's, does anybody know the Latin um, term for out of nothing? Ex nihilo. So if you hear that, that's, that's the scholarly smart way to say he created something out of nothing or everything out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Okay. Um, so any other thoughts before we move on to our next statement here? Okay, we good? We're tracking so far? Everything makes sense? If it doesn't, let me know. Um, okay, in six days is the next small little portion that nobody has any debates over. Um, so I put in six days, notice I didn't put in six 24-hour literal days, right? Um, because within orthodoxy, that has, that's a packed statement and actually could mean a few different things. There are a few different views on the days that would fall well within orthodoxy. It seems as such, like when we talked about in the beginning, <clears throat> God didn't decide to reveal exactly what they were. Like the day, the word for day is yom. And most of the time in scripture, it's talking, it's referring to a, a day, a 24-hour day. But there are a handful of times where it's not, right? And so like we read it and it's clear, right? Six days, got it. But if you're not careful, you could eisegete the text. You could read in your own understanding to what that means without saying who wrote it, what is the original language, how is this used the rest of scripture. You have to be faithful and not lazy to understand what this is and non-lazy faithful men to disagree, right? So well, we have a, a bunch of people that line up on different spots here. Um, but what they can't do is go outside of scripture. What they can't do is disagree with the things that we talked about about why creation was made. What they can't do is um, disagree with redemption and sin and all of these big doctrines that, that if any of those beliefs end up swerving from the truth that we do know that are undebatable, then that's where there's a problem. So within, I, I'm going to list a couple of views. I don't want to spend a bunch of time here because we could do a whole hour on just the views of six days, how old is the earth, like all of these things. So those things stem from the doctrine of creation, but they aren't the doctrine of creation, okay? Those are cool, curious, um, and, and scientifically, like it matches, like, we would say that this actually does match with science, um, but that our authority is scripture, so where those things end up parting ways in consensus, we're gonna stick with scripture, right? But um, that is not the doctrine itself, that's an aspect of it. So let's look at a couple views, uh, and then you, we can interact on any other views that anybody else might have, or um, maybe some questions about them. But the first one um, that I listed is called the day-age view. Its creation narrative gives a chronological history of God's creative acts, but the days are of an indefinite duration, most likely periods of many years. So this view is saying that day is going to take one of the other meanings that it does have in Scripture and say, like, is, this is an indefinite amount of time. God, this day, look at all, like, the, the days are stacked with a multiple events and some only a couple. So it's like, well, this day could have taken, if all of those things happened on day three, like that could have taken a long time. And then on this day, only a couple things happened. That was probably shorter. Um, only a few days mentioned evening and morning. Evening and morning don't necessarily mean a day, right? That just means when the light happened and when the light stopped, right? So again, like there's some room here for some intellectual conversation. Um, and, and charity. Um, that's uh, that's going to be one of the first kind of popular views. Um, the framework view is the next one. The creation narrative describes God's acts topically 
and that the secession of days is a literary device for presenting those topical categories, not asserting chronological sequence. So you'll start to see a spectrum of um, literal versus allegorical and people landing in different spots on what is completely literal and what is literal and allegorical or what is completely allegorical. Like this was just trying to get a concept across, not trying to be precise, right? Um, so these are all gonna be in the systematic theologies that we recommend. Um, I pulled these shorter definitions from John Frame, um, but Wayne Grudem actually spent a lot more time uh, on creation than, than Frame does and um, has really good thoughts on that. So I would encourage you to, to look at those um, if you ever want to just kind of broaden your, your view. Um, but most importantly, to broaden your view on how big the kingdom of God is in the sense that we can have these different views and be charitable to one another and work together. Um, the most literal view is the next one. It's the normal day view that the days are 24 hours seceding one another chronologically. Like, um, I will say this is the most natural reading of the text um, and probably the, the widest held view for that reason. I do think that the natural reading of the text is an important aspect of a hermeneutical approach to what the Bible is saying often. Um, but again, there is room that these things could be one of these other views. Um, and then there's some nuanced views in between these, um, you know, for people that don't like to be put in boxes like myself, like there's, well, I like this part and it makes sense if I grab this part. And, you know, so there's some nuanced views in here. I, I actually, I'm, I'm still unconvinced that it's not a normal day, um, but I see where people are getting the other views from. And I can say, that's okay. Like that's like, that doesn't ruin fellowship. That doesn't make you not a believer. Um, and so this, this is an important statement by Wayne Grudem at the end of this section where he says, therefore, with respect to the length of days in Genesis 1, the possibility must be left open that God has chosen not to give us enough information to come to a clear decision on this question. And the real test of faithfulness to him may be the degree to which we can act charitably towards those who in good conscience and full belief in God's word hold to a different position on this matter. I think the last sentence is really important. So it's not anything goes by no means. But if um, I know a man to be faithful and I know his approach to scripture to be in faith and he's on a journey working through those things and he lines up somewhere else within these orthodox views, or even if he doesn't but is working on it, is teasing things out, is having open discussion about it, trying to formulate these things, there's a lot of charity there and there should be. Um, I don't think this, the, the day per se should be a hill that we die on or break fellowship over. Um, it may make things harder to do a specific ministries together, sure, especially if they're centered around creation. But, um, but as church members at GCF, I think all of these views could be held within this room and that shouldn't dissuade us from fellowship, from the table, from, um, from worshiping together. Far from it, actually. That should be in spite of those things, we have the Holy Spirit in, in unity here. Um, so again, not everything goes, but there's room here for some intellectual pursuit uh, based upon what scripture tells us. Any thoughts or implications or applications or disagreeing or tomatoes? You get the whole thing in? Yeah. <laughs> this is pretty good, man. <laughs>
Yeah, I think uh, I'm with you. I think also there's the work week, right, that God set forward. Those are literal, and they're based upon six days of work and seven days he rested, right? So, um, but again, you can't, you can't with a straight face say, like, there's no times in Scripture where God made a literal application to something that is spiritual or allegorical, like, right? So we got to be careful and, and know that that is a possibility. Um, but I'm with you. I think, to me, um, even though I see the merits of the other ones, like, I'm going to need more to be moved from the literal position. Um, but I'm, I'm very good friends with guys that have opposite, and I love them. And they're some of my best friends, more so than a lot of people that believe what I believe. So, um, anyway, yeah, you, so both of you guys. My view is the God, all-powerful, you know, like, created everything out of nothing. But when he created everything from the day one, they did, it was a spoken thing, and it just happened. It didn't take time. It didn't take God just spoke it out. Yeah. So, even if, so, I, here's the thing. Maybe it didn't happen that way. But I believe, even if, but even if, you believe it didn't happen that way, you need to believe that it could have. Does that make sense? So like, whether God created and a, a mature world right away, or whether he took time over days, periods, to allow things to unfold, or to take his time placing things and doing things, either way, what you have to believe, whether you hold the longer view or not, is that he could have just done that, right? And then the literal view is you just, you, you just camp there. That's, that's what we believe in the literal view. So, good point. Yeah. Sorry, one second. Right? Interesting. To the, to the point. Sure. Right, so, yeah. I see. Um, yeah, like, so like I said, the charity is not at the expense of, again, the rest of Scripture. And so, like, we'd reject a lot of things that if, if, if there's any type of view that's going to um, manipulate or change the view of who Adam is, the fall, and the result of the fall, redemption, Christ, resurrection, um, who human beings are, right? That's a big one today. What sexuality is, what marriage is, we are going to reject those views. Any view, especially when you get into um, how old is the earth, you get into more views of like, do you believe in evolution or not? And um, I would say macroevolution we reject. We don't think that a fish became something else, right? We think that everything was made according to its kind, as Genesis says. Um, but have things adapted over time? and become different because of their environments? Yeah, of course, absolutely, right? And that's, exact. so that's microevolution, right? That's evolution on a, on a micro scale that we would agree with, but all the macro things we would say, probably not, yeah, I don't think so. Um, especially another view that would then make animals equal with human beings. Nope, sorry, you love your puppy, like, 
there is a chasm between the value of that puppy and any other person in the world, on death row or not, right? Chasm. There's no, it's insurmountable. God created man as the pinnacle of creation, um, mankind, and everything else was subject to mankind. There's no, we're going to get more into that. Emily, you had a thought. Sure. And yeah, the hard part about that is like, well, the air that we breathe, does it need trees? And then did he create a tree and then let it grow to be a behemoth sequoia before he allowed, like, or did he create a mature world that the homeostasis of was ready for human beings to plop in? And I know you have a pushback probably. But, that, but then we're going to cut it off and move on because we got... That, that's why I didn't want to touch on everything in this thing, because this could have been the whole hour, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, we're cutting it off at that because that's going to open Pandora's box. But those are good thoughts. And that's just showing that, like, within these short statements in the creation narrative, like, this could take up your lifetime, like, thinking and talking about those things, pointing again to God's glory, right? Um, right? But again, it wasn't obviously written to satisfy every curiosity or every precise scientific theory or query. Um, so let's move on, just because of time. We got 15 minutes. I'm going to get through these next couple here um, and have some discussion. Uh, next statement is, as creator, God owns everything, sustains everything, and determines the purpose of everything. That's a hard one for us today. That's a hard one for society today. Um, so uh, I wrote here the creation-creation table analogy. And that's just, I, I mentioned it one of our last talks as I interjected, but um, like if you create a table, Sam's created a table, right? Um, he does good work if you guys ever, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, Sam created a table, I've eaten at it very, very often at Mossback's house. But uh, if you create a table, you decide the purpose of it, 
right? And it's yours until you give it or until somebody pays for it or whatever it is. So as creator, intrinsically in being the creator, whatever you create, you decide what it's for and it's yours, but also you decide if it's good or not, like based upon it fulfilling the purpose you created it for, right? So there's the analogy of the hammer. So if I have a hammer, how do I tell if it's a good hammer or not? Well, is the nail in the board after I use it? Like, did it break? Did it fulfill its purpose? Is it sturdy? All the things that I was hoping it would be? Well, then I could say it's a good hammer. And it's the same thing with people, right? So like, what makes you a good person when people say, oh, I'm a good person? What determines that? You? Or are you fulfilling the purpose at which you were created, which is what actually makes you good, right? Because um, if you're not, you're a bad person. You're a bad hammer. You're a crappy table. Um, so um, within this statement, we have the creation, creator, just the intrinsic relationship that the creator has to his creation. And so if God created everything, right, how much more? And if he created out of nothing, how much more? Right? Like, we had to take wood to make the table. There's nothing that we can start with. We can't, we can't start with nothing and then something happens. Right? Um, and um, this gets also into the doctrine of providence, which can't spend time on right now, uh, a, a bunch. But uh, I brought in the Westminster Catechism's um, larger confession, or larger catechism question, question 18. It says, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and their actions to his glory. So what are some interactions and applications we could take that God owns everything, sustains everything, and determines the purpose of everything? Thoughts? And how does this play out with the world in which we live in and the people we interact with? And you structure your life around that purpose, right? Not the one you decide, right? Right, yeah, creation's groaning, right? And the one thing that would fulfill it is the thing that it abhors, to your point. Like, and um, it's our, one of our purposes as God's people to display the wonderfulness of being in fellowship with God and obeying what he's commanded us to do and in our gatherings and in our personal life and our homes that are warm and rich with hospitality and, and for people to see that and be like, what's different here? And it's like, well, the difference is, is that first and foremost, which we'll get into soteriology, but God invaded and took over and thank, thank the Lord, right? Um, he saved me um, with no merit, by no merit of my own. Um, but also the difference is, is that because I believe God is who he says he is and that he orders everything, he owns everything, I defer to him for what my purpose is and adhere to that. Like, instead of what's happening today, which I touched on a couple of weeks ago, where 
the prevailing narrative of the day is that the individual decides their own reality and their own purpose, right? And not only that, you have to accept it, you have to celebrate it, right? And all eight billion of us have their own. It's chaos. It's the opposite of order. God created an orderly world, right? And that is chaos, where everyone is autonomous and gets to determine their sex, gender, um, and what is their truth, right? But then that conflicts with yours and yours and yours and yours, but all of you have to celebrate his, right? That's chaos. That's, we're gonna self-destruct, right? And we as God's people are saying, no, we reject that narrative and accept that God determined all of that and for some reason decided to allow me into it and I'm gonna obey and I'm gonna enjoy and I'm going to walk with him. He determines all these things and he revealed what they are. Praise God, right? Um, so that's a huge part of an outworking of the doctrine of creation in your daily lives. And we're not meant to condemn people that are in this self-reality, my truth. We're not meant to walk out and um, be unkind to them. Um, and yet, we are to hold firm to those truths without allowing those truths to infiltrate our lives and our, and I'm saying those truths, not those people, right? Those truths are not allowed to infiltrate who we are and what we are. But I hope those people walk through the door, right? And that we're kind to them. And that they see what living under God's rule is and in his reality and his purpose um, and how wonderful it is. Um, any other thoughts on the more providential aspects of the doctrine of creation before we move on a little bit? And we'll even touch on these on the last one as well. Okay, we got five minutes, so we got 10 minutes. Um, uh, next one is all that he created was good, yet only the creation of mankind, both male and female, made it very good as man was created in God's very image. You'll notice in the creation narrative that every time he concluded a day or period of creating, he said it was good, but then he created man and it was what? Very good, right? Why? Created, we were created in his image. Um, the Westminster Larger Catechism in question 17 answers part of this and it says, he endued them with living, reasonable, and immortal souls. He made them after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, having the law of God written on their hearts and power to fulfill it. So we're made in God's image and that made the world and all of creation therefore very good. Um, particularly that last statement's interesting, that he created man, mankind with the law written on their hearts and that they had the power to fulfill it. And we know that we didn't. Right, that we disobeyed. Um, but in Romans, it talks about um, people exchanging the truth for a lie, meaning that they started with it. It doesn't mean that they weren't sinful, but the truth was there somewhere in their hearts, according to scripture. How does that change your approach to like apologetics or evangelism or how you view God? Like, we view him as like, how, how can you dare condemn this person, right? And we're taught to say like, who are you, a man? And we should. But we forget that actually everyone has this written on their heart already at a starting point. And they had to live a life of suppressing it, keeping it down. Nope, 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 nope. And they exchange it for a lie. And then what happens in Romans? That's when all the, the long list of abominable things that God detests that are sinful start to happen is the suppression of this thing. Everyone's made in God's image. Therefore, everyone has this written on their heart and they suppress it. So when you come and talk to somebody with that in mind, that's really interesting. That changes your approach. You're actually not, I mean, in some senses, you're starting from square one, but like, 
it really helps me and gives me courage knowing that if I'm going to share the gospel with this person, it's written in there somewhere. Like, that God is real. There's an, the image of God is, this person has it. Right? It gives me confidence. Right? Um, any thoughts with any of that statement, not just what I highlighted? Yeah. I agree, that's definitely big, a big part of it. Yeah. Our power is hum humility before the Lord. The Lord looks upon the man who's humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. Uh, yeah, Dave and then. throw it in the back of the truck and <laughs> yeah I have done that sorry that's the only reason I said that yeah That's a good point. Thank you. And then you had. Yeah. Yeah. Equal in value. Yeah. Yeah, our whole value system needs to change based upon, well, maybe not needs to change, but should be built around this. Um, one of the things that you mentioned that I think is worth mentioning, and I don't want to get into any hot water, but like you see that um, male and female, to your point, the reason I made sure it was in there, equal in value, equally made in God's image. But then when we talked about God being triune before anything and all of his attributes, being existent in that triunity when in Ephesians it says wives submit to your husbands the reference is as Christ does so that means as Christ always did in the Trinity Christ has always existed equal in value and yet in submission to the Father so like women are equal in value there's no question are the roles laid out a little bit differently here for each person? Like for men and women? Yes, but that, does that devalue women in any way? No, because then you would have to say it devalues Christ. Right? It's important. Yeah. Sure, sure, yeah. That's, uh, that's something that we'll get into actually on the next next one. Um, so before we go there, does anybody else have any thoughts on this little segment? And then we'll have to wrap it up in two minutes here. One more. It brings back to the thought about power. You know, we're in our hearts and stuff. So it's like having the atheist struggle in your world by trying to prove God's worth and Yeah. 
Sure. Yeah, that's why, like, when somebody's going after Christianity, I'm like, keep going, brother. Yeah. See you soon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, good point. Um, I'm going to move on to the next one, even though there's going to be more good thoughts. We have a couple of minutes, um, like I said a couple of minutes ago. Um, last one is, and is set over all of creation to enjoy fellowship with God, to take dominion, to fill the earth, and to rule on his behalf. And so that's man is set over all creation to enjoy fellowship with God, um, take dominion and fill the earth. Um, so this is purpose statements for us. God created us for purpose. Um, and initially it's with, for fellowship with him. Um, that's important to know that we can have fellowship with him. That destroys the deist argument or a Gnostic argument that there's somebody, something up there. But like we're not like, no, no, no. Why you exist is to have fellowship with that God. So we reject that line of philosophical thought or religion um, that says that God is absent from his creation. Nope, not at all. Um, uh, that fellowship, one of the points I want to make is that fellowship with God is contingent upon things. Um, and I don't mean that there's no relation, but the fellowship aspect, right, what we do here on Sunday is contingent upon obedience. Right? He says when he gives the creation mandate, right, and then he puts a tree, puts man in the garden, puts a tree in the garden and says all of this is yours. Here's all the things I want you to do. Don't do that. One thing. Don't do that. Right? And then the fellowship was broken by them doing it. So fellowship with God is contingent upon obedience. So it's important that that is a narrative that is throughout scripture that sometimes we... Um, distance ourselves from because we're by grace through faith, man. Right? I'm good. Fire insurance in my back pocket. Solid. On the day of the Lord, got my ticket. Right? No, no. Faith without obedience isn't faith. At all. It's not mental assent. It's a holistic mental assent, belief, and then the step forward that confirms what you believe. And so we see that um, fellowship with God is contingent upon obedience. And it's not that it breaks the entire fellowship, but it, it strains the relationship, it breaks the relationship, it distances you from when you disobey. And the closer you are to the Lord, you're often walking in obedience. That's why we say God is covenantal. And you'll learn more about that coming up. But God makes covenant with man. And you are blessed for keeping it. And you're a curse for not. Fellowship is contingent upon obedience. And so um, some of those ways that we obey is, like, in, in the creation narrative, we see what marriage is. Man, woman. Right? So are there legal, under the Constitution, not the Scripture, under the Constitution, can we imagine, and we're living in a world where two men or two women can be in a union legally? Yeah. Totally. Is it marriage, though? No. Marriage is what God prescribes, and I listed, I showed my work, I promise. Um, in Genesis, where he says a man shall leave his wife, and, or leave, <laughs> leave, leave, his, leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, who's a woman, right? And so um, we understand that the definition of marriage is written right here, and it's being completely obliterated. Legally, yes, under God's law, Absolutely not. You don't, it's not called marriage. You can call it a civil union, I don't care. But it's not marriage. It's mirage. Right? Um, uh, and then fulfilling the creation mandate, be fruitful, fill the earth, subdue it. Um, that still exists. That didn't go away with the fall. It's just harder. Right? When God curses humanity, which we'll learn about next week, I think, right? Um, he says, all these things now are harder. Childbirth, working the ground. Still your mission, though, right? So that should change our view on how you keep your home and how you work and the things that you're going to put your time to, doing them with excellence, because that's taking dominion. That's subduing the earth. That's what that looks like nowadays, and it's harder. But it's still our marching orders. It's still part of the obedience to the Lord and to his covenant and to our purpose for being a good hammer, <laughs> Right? Um, it matters. So um, we got to stop. Church, 
gathers in five minutes. Um, any other questions, I'd love to talk to you. But um, interact with uh, some of these resources, Westminster Confession, Larger Catechism, John Frame's Systematic Theology, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, especially if you're really interested on creation, 